This episode of the APA podcast is sponsored by Tyler Technologies. Tyler's leading civic services technology offers comprehensive, automated, and connected civic services solutions for smart government operations. From permitting, inspections, and licensing to asset management and citizen requests. Visit www.tylertech.com to learn more. Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that looks at how different communities prepared for and responded to natural hazards such as floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and more. How have planners in these communities promoted resilience in their hazard mitigation to disaster recovery planning? We'll find out on this episode of Resilience Roundtable, brought to you in conjunction with the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. I'm your host, Rich Roths. I'm a part-time senior hazard planner for Burton Planning Service of Columbus, Ohio. I'm also a proud member of the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg is a distinguished professor at the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. He studies environmental health and risk analysis and has written more than 30 books and more than 300 articles, including an article on cascading hazards and hazard mitigation plans. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Greenberg. You know, it's my pleasure. I enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Okay, we'll get started. Our first question is, can you give us a little background in your career and how you got interested in planning? Sure. Um, I'm very much the multidisciplinary person. As an undergraduate student, I focused on math. And in graduate school, I was very interested in spatial statistics. And for my PhD thesis, I worked on drought and related water supply problems using the statistics I had learned. Um, as I moved forward in my career, I got more and more interested in complicated, I'll call them risk analysis-based studies that always involved some critical input from planners. And so I've worked on chemical weapons uh, plutonium destruction and management, hazardous waste sites, um, a wide variety of environmental problems that nobody wants to hear about until the event occurs, then we all hear about them and wish we weren't hearing about them. Great. Sounds like an interesting background. Uh, Dr. Greenberg, could you define a cascading hazard for our audience? Sure. When there's a tornado or a hurricane or an nor'easter or a drought, everybody sees what they see on the screen. They look out the window. They hear things. They see things. But that's mostly what they focus on. But a cascading event occurs when the initial event triggers many other events. So the hurricane that triggers the flooding that knocks out the communication system that floods the police station and the fire station and basically 
destroys the ability of the community to respond. Uh, a good image of it, I think, for the, for the viewers and the listeners is one time or other, all of us have played, tried to build a house of cards or play dominoes. Well, remember you put up that house of cards, it looks wonderful and then accidentally you hit it with your finger and they all fall over. Cascading effect then is that first finger hit on one card knocks them all over. How prevalent are cascading hazards? Well, yeah, you know, when you asked me that question, I thought about it, I, I, I can't find the answer to the question. There, there have not been any really systematic studies of it, but I can tell you that when it comes up, it's pretty much always in the context of some combination of water, climate change, tornadoes, and the communities affected are almost always poor, underserved, often minorities communities. But we don't, we, at least I can't answer that question. And I've read a lot of studies on this. Well, you kind of answered both that question and our next question was, are any hazards more likely to lead to cascading hazards than others? Yeah, think of a worst case condition. You live in a low-lying area next to a river that's subject to flooding periodically, but with the increase in frequency of storms and nor'easters and other related events. Living in, a, in what used to often be called bottomlands is extremely hazardous. And who lives in those places? It's typically people who are poor, underserved, often minority communities without a lot of political power. So an enormous amount of the vulnerability is focused around a selected number of people. I first came into contact with this when I visited an area that it's hard to believe that in the 20th century, this small community had been flooded over 20 times in the century and the government kept on coming back, giving the people money so they could rebuild. And finally, someone in the new FEMA office in this area said, we're not doing this anymore. This is crazy. It's repeated, repeated flooding. The events are cascading. It's knocking out the water. It's communications. It's causing health-related problems as well as destruction of housing. We'll rebuild. We'll build an entire town for you. We'll give you money so you can relocate. But if you want to stay where you are, we're not going to help you anymore. I've uh, seen that happen quite a number of times along the Mississippi flooding. That was, of course, that was the place I visited. Okay. Hattonsburg. Okay, I've been there. Okay. okay. Which states and kinds of places are most vulnerable to cascading events? Uh, which places have been most involved in working on them or, or suffered from them? are most vulnerable to the cascading events? Well, it's, it's a little difficult to know for sure because until uh, the Stafford Act was passed in 1980, we really, we really had no good data sets, but essentially uh, California, Texas, Florida, New York, and these are all the most populated states typically have been the states that have had the most hazardous events and the most cascading effects. And uh, maybe Oklahoma's one without the largest population, but it, it's right there in Tornado Alley. And so Oklahoma's had a disproportionate share, share as well. But if I had to pick a state, 
that has had a mass amount of vulnerability, it's Texas. When I, I, I did, some, uh, did some work on uh, Texas, literally every kind of major hazardous event that you can think of that caused requests for federal money were, were happened in Texas because Texas is so big and it's everything from flooding, worst flood event ever, Galveston Island over a century ago killed several thousand people up to the Western and Northern parts of Texas, which have had tremendous problems with drought. Texas is a place of extremes, but every single kind of event you can think of. And I would recommend to people listening that if you ever go to Galveston, go down to the beach and you'll see this incredible statue of a, a man holding his child after the flood of 1900 and all those deaths that occurred. The, that was interesting, not only with Texas, but you had mentioned Oklahoma. Yeah. And uh, now we're beginning to hear after the, the uh, tornadoes of this past week that Tornado Alley may be moving east and new areas may uh, face cascading events. Yeah, I think, I think that's gonna be the case. We're, we're seeing this all over. And in some of the questions you're gonna ask me probably in a few minutes, I'll have some examples of that, but um, I agree. I, even New Jersey, we talk about getting um, tornadoes now. Of course, your home, home state with Rutgers. Right, yeah. Okay. Could you give our audience examples of cascading disasters that have occurred over the last decade? Yeah, I guess the, the first one that registered occurred over a decade ago, but it's one I've done a lot of thinking about, which is Katrina, which probably everybody listening to this has heard about. So you, and it illustrates the principles of where not to be. Well, New Orleans is 80% of it's below sea level. And so when the storm occurred, it attacked over the top, it breached, it went through, and the water came from underneath up through the ground. Most of New Orleans was flooded. So that's what people saw, and that was awful, that was terrible. But in the process, it knocked out the communications, it knocked out the ability of the police, it knocked out the ability of the police to communicate with the fire department. I read the testimony at, at a federal hearing of the chief of police who said, in order for me to direct the troopers where I want them to go, I had to climb up on top of the highest place I could possibly get to and look with a pair of binoculars to find out what places needed us to go. So that's a classical case where the flood was awful and then the things that occurred behind it were as awful and just made the problem much, much worse. As you know, a lot of people drowned. A lot of people who were senior citizens could not get out of the area. The bus service uh, wasn't available. It, it just, it, it went from one system's failure to another. It is the classical how not to do things. I represented a team from APA that went down there six weeks after Katrina. And uh, with the police, we noted that there were tires laying all over the place. It was because their uh, cars driving through after the disasters were blowing their tires uh, every day. Another thing we noted was that the National Guard headquarters 
was underwater. Yep. Down there, which knocked out their ability to respond. Yeah. Yeah. President Bush held uh, hearings on it. And you have all of this layered testimony from different groups. It's very sad. And then, you know, we could, we could take another one, Fukushima. Okay, not in the United States, but they had actually done a risk assessment, had actually built a retaining wall, but unfortunately it wasn't high enough. So you get an earthquake, a natural hazard. It causes a tsunami. The tsunami goes over the top, knocks out the electrical power, I remember I was sitting in a meeting in Washington, D.C. when they were showing this and people were just completely upset and angry over what was happening because they couldn't do anything about it. They knew that they didn't have enough battery power to operate it. And once the cooling uh, water went out, then you recall seeing on TV the uh, spent fuel rods blowing up, catching on fire. There's another classical set of cascading events where one event an earthquake off in the water causes all of these things on land. And then I guess you could add to that some of the fires that we've seen in California, which have just been horrific, in which many of them caused by people moving to places that they probably shouldn't have moved to. You get a fire, it spreads, and the health effects of this have been awful. Um, Again, the systems have been burned out, knocked out, And of course, I'll just briefly mention COVID is another one that you could follow through uh, where people have got viruses before, but you know, this one just had this ongoing effect and people want it to go away, but it's not going away anytime soon. Right. Uh, We don't know when it will go away. No, we don't. I don't think it will. It's gonna be endemic. Yes. We hope everyone is enjoying the show. Support for today's show comes from Tyler Technologies. Tyler's industry-leading civic services solutions allow you to serve constituents more efficiently and effectively, enabling communities to safely drive development. From permitting, licensing, and inspections to asset management and citizen requests, Tyler's comprehensive software automates, connects, and streamlines critical government processes. Whether it's engaging with and empowering citizens, creating sustainable virtual workflows, or leveraging your data to track and optimize performance, EnerGov can do it all. Visit www.tylertech.com today to learn more. Okay, in your research, you mentioned anthropogenic-initiated cascading events. Could you explain that? Yes, I'll explain it. That... Whenever there's a natural hazard, people tend to be more forgiving because they think it was caused by God. Uh, Then they are when there's an industrial explosion or when there's a rail accident, they assume it's caused by people. But more and more we see that these events occur right next to each other. And the question is, which caused which? And increasingly, I'm certain you, you will agree that they cause each other. There's a feedback loop between what human beings start and the natural hazard makes worse, goes back to human beings. So think of a case where somebody builds um, a holding facility for ash from a coal plant, doesn't put a liner in, puts it there and then it breaks because there's a storm. Doesn't even have to be a big storm, just enough to break the liner and the slush, which is horrific looking, 
breaks out, goes into a river, kills everything in the river, knocks out the water supply, knocks out the sewage system, causes people to evacuate and leaves this incredible slurry. And I would recommend to people who haven't seen this, Google Kingston, Tennessee coal slurry spill. It'll be one of the most terrible things you've ever seen on the screen where this gray ooze just goes in the area and essentially kills everything. And that, I mean, I would say that that is human started. And then the natural facility, the river delivered it further. So when human beings set fire to things, when they put up industrial facilities that catch on fire or explode, it's hard to say which, which came first. It's a combination. And there's a feedback loop between each stage. And so many floods are caused by people building in areas they should have never built in in the first place because they wanted to be near the water. Absolutely. And that's, of course, as you well know, that is still the case. People, even my age, who have a hard time running anymore and doing things like that, we like to live by the water. But then when we have to be evacuated, it's very difficult for the first responders to evacuate us. So imagine someone building a seniors citizens facility in a really, really vulnerable floodplain. That is just shouldn't happen. But as you know, it happens. And if there's enough money available for someone to build it, they'll build it. Kind of like it. If you build it, they will come. Yes. Mm -hmm. How likely are they to occur, would you say? Again, don't know. I checked on it. It just seems like if we go by expense and number of events for which federal and state money is asked, it's just been escalating at a nonlinear rate over the years. So if you look at these most recent events, now I know everything costs more, so you would expect the money to increase, but even if we control for inflation, it seems like there's a lot more of these events, both human initiated, caused by nature, interacting with humans and then cascading into much more serious events. Uh, I have no reason to believe that this is not going to continue. Probably at an escalating rate. That's what, that's what the data tell us. Okay, let's move on to uh, mitigation plans. Uh, based on your research, do many local mit hazard mitigation plans deal with cascading events? They mention it, but that's usually about all. And I'm not, in any way, am I, I'm not being critical because the mere fact that we now have a requirement for hazard mitigation plans is a tremendous step forward. You and I go back far enough when we remember that there was no such thing as a hazard mitigation plan. You had a city plan, and now you have to, in case the, the, your governor is gonna go back and ask for aid, you have to have a plan for your state and then now for counties and now for individual communities. But the community plans tend to be focused on what they consider to be the single most important risk, be it a flood, be it a fire, be it an industrial accident. And then they mentioned that this could cause interactions, but they don't push it very far. And you know that's sort of at the end of this, where I'll go with my proposal, where I think you just can't sit around waiting for these things to happen. But so some, I mentioned it, that's usually about as far as it goes. 
Uh, based on your research, how about uh, do many state hazard mitigation plans deal with cascading events? State plans all, almost always mention it. But once again, they talk about, well, we're going to take it one step at a time. And if we control this, we'll be able to control that. I have no confidence in those assertions. Whether it's under terrorism part of it or it's under the storm part of it, it just seems to me that we don't know enough and we're risking an awful lot by allowing these events to cascade. But once again, I'm not blaming the states. It wasn't all that long ago. We didn't have any state plans. So even the best state plans like California and New York and Colorado, they'll go into it in more depth and they'll talk about what, what I consider cascading effects, but they don't say we need to spend this many dollars on these specific projects. What they will often say is, well, in this part of our state, we're thinking about doing this new facility. Maybe we need to rethink that about whether we're going to do it all or if we're going to do it, how we're going to do it to prevent these effects from occurring. So that shows forward thinking. I'm going to add an additional question in here. Uh, have you done any research on the uh, community or state disaster response plans to, as to whether they're prepared for cascading events? Some are. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I, I, I was going to answer for one of the other questions is some actually practice. They will pretend that there's a disaster. They will rehearse it. And those are incredibly important. Putting stuff down in a plan, thinking about how you implement it is one thing, but actually trying to execute it, even if it's only practice, is extremely important. And I've participated in a couple of those. You can yeah. see that people are talking to each other. The key thing is here is you have a dozen people sitting around the table and they're talking to each other. If this occurs, we need to do that. If that occurs, we need to do this. And that's just from a relatively simple response with the cascading effects. The responses are all over the place. So they're just much more, much more complicated and difficult to manage. Okay. Can you give us several examples of how local governments and states deal with cascading events? So I'm going to say, if you had asked me this question before 2015, I don't think I could have given you one that I really felt good about. Now, in the latest iterations of 2018 and 2019, there are some pretty good ones. And I would start with Portland, Oregon, which has done an enormous amount of work thinking about the kinds of problems that could occur in their environment. And, you know, so they talk about dam failures. We know that there's a lot of rain in that area. Well, they're storing the water and often it's being stored in places where the dams are very, very old. And so Portland's thought about what would happen if one of those dams breaks. So this would be a combination of a man-made dam and a storm that triggers it and causes a flood. So that's one, and they talk about the places where this may be, and they talk about what they might need to do. Then they talk a lot about, and a bunch of states are now talking about fires. Fires as a real threat because they could set on fire other things um, that would blow up and explode and you know, cascading on the ground and overwhelm the water system, overwhelm the fire department, 
knock out the sewage system. It's pretty, it's pretty distressing just to read these scenarios. But that state has done a lot of thinking about it. They even came up with one scenario that was just fascinating. And I've been on the Columbia River a bunch of times because I've worked for the Department of Energy at the Hanford site. They've talked about there being a tsunami on the Columbia River, which I must tell you, I never thought of. And if there was a tsunami on the Columbia River, even at the mouth, uh, that is really threatening. So that's one state that's done a lot of thinking. Another state that's done a lot of thinking is California. And California wrote a lot, uh, did a lot of deep thinking about fires. All the different things that could happen as a result of fires caused by nature, fires caused by humans, fires caused by a combination of things. And of course, now we're seeing all of those things occurring. I think that's the single best treatment of the fire issue that I have seen, and obviously they need to do it. And then the last one, my old state where I used to live, New York State and New York City in particular, talking about their old infrastructure, meaning the old sewer lines, the old water lines, the old subway lines, focusing on what would happen if this happened in those subway lines, if those happen. So I mean, I think these are three good examples of local governments that has spent a lot of time thinking about it and at least understand the need to, to focus on it. Uh, from your research, how well have federal and state and local governments responded to these cascading disasters so far? Well, I think we all know the answer to that, not very well. From COVID to floods to tornadoes, we just seem to be overwhelmed. And one of the things I'd like to do sometime in the not too distant future is to study what the people who were responsible for responding, what they did and debrief them. I don't think we know for sure how successful they were. I do think I have heard, but without any data to back it up, so I don't wanna make any claims, is that the states that thought about it, the states that practice it, did a little bit better. The disasters were a little bit less than in places that haven't done what I would consider enough planning and enough testing of their plans. That may be wishful thinking, however. I would probably suggest to adding to that is having controllers for their testing that are willing to throw some things into the test to stress the tests. Yep. And I'm just really talking about the original event and you're pushing in the cascading. Yes, you're right. And, you know, I, I do think something more than what the federal government is doing now needs to be done. Okay, that moves us to our final question. How can hazard mitigation planning process be modified both at the federal, state and local levels to increase the focus on cascading events? Well, in government money talks, and right now we've gotten to the point where states have to have a hazard mitigation plan and it gets checked at least every five years. Almost every major county has to have one or a group of counties have to have one. It's gotten down to municipalities. Some of these municipalities like Galveston, Texas 
needs one. There's only 50,000 people that live there. They have their own. But I don't think that's enough. There's so much that they have to do under that. I'm suggesting a special program done through FEMA as part of the next round of hazard mitigation planning that involves the federal government saying, as part of your next plan submission, I want you at a minimum to sit down with your advisors and come up with a list of five or six, could be 10 if you wish, things that are, are really scaring and could cause cascading effects. And secondly then, we'll get that information and we may invite you to come back and write for a special grant that would allow you to focus entirely on the worst cascading event you can think of. And you know, this idea came to me because years, years, years ago, when the federal government EPA put together the Brownfields pilot grant program, I had something to do with that proposal, working through the, the federal legislature, and it worked beautifully. That is the federal government gave states and selected cities amount of money that they would use to focus on brownfields redevelopment. It seems to me that that was very successful for a small investment of money. You had municipalities like Detroit and Bridgeport and Cleveland and Trenton put together a special brownfields redevelopment plan with action items. And I think that's what we need here. Having the federal government require in their next response, a list of major projects. And then if the federal government concludes that there's real serious risk here of cascading effects, federal government would invite a small list of communities, which is what they did with Brownfields redevelopment, to come back, give them a bigger amount of money to write a bigger proposal on the issue of what they would wanna deal with. So in Portland, I think it would be really good to challenge them to write a proposal around dams, California fires, each state has its ones that they believe are the biggest challenges, but I don't think that there's sufficient money or pressure for local governments to focus on cascading effects unless the federal government provides, I'll call them competitive pilot grants. And if you are successful in winning one of these competitive pilot grants, I would hope it would work like the Brownfields program where the federal government say, okay, you now you wrote a really good response. We're gonna put you in touch with the various federal departments and you're gonna be eligible for additional money to do what you say you're gonna do. There may be better ideas than this, but this is as far as I've been able to think it through. It sounds like since you're talking about money, it would take an act of Congress to uh, make this possible. Yes, I do believe that's the case. Yes, but, I mean, that worked with the, you know, this, it worked with Brownfields, wow, almost 40 years ago when the United States around 1989, 1990, 1991, hemorrhaged 2 million manufacturing jobs, leaving all these manufacturing sites abandoned or almost abandoned, many times contaminated. And they were really hurting the local economies. So the federal government stepped up, but can back then there was much more ability for a political consensus between the parties. Would there be one now? I, I can tell you there it was, it was then because the Republican and Democrat administrations, that was one of the few things they agreed on back then. 
Could they do it now? I don't know. I would hope so. Unfortunately, it might take a cascading event to force their hand. I don't even know if that would do it at this point. Some of the things I see are just, just very distressing. Okay, thank you, Dr. Greenberg. And thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For resources on hazard mitigation and disaster recovery, visit planning.org backslash resilience. To hear past episodes of the APA podcast, visit planning.org backslash podcast. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was sponsored by Tyler Technologies, empowering the public sector to create safer, stronger, and more vibrant communities. To learn how Tyler's civic services software solutions enable communities to streamline, connect, and automate government processes, visit www.tylertech.com.